From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Separation Anxiety, Part 2. But I think 90 decibels is enough to detect the, the, the posterior high alert. So I, I did this study with a, with a commercially available ultrascan. First this. You're enjoying As Seen From Here, the landmark podcast from the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, launched way back in February of 2005. Why not enjoy some of the other ASCRS offerings, including the ASCRS Symposium in Congress, the meeting to end all meetings in ophthalmology, or the ASCRS Winter Update, where you can meet one-on-one with some of ophthalmology's most important leaders in a beautiful setting. Or see the future of ophthalmology at iSpace MD, the global ophthalmic classroom brought to you by the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. If you're a resident, check out openophthalmology.com, an extensive lecture series on clinical optics. And remember, Residents and fellows can join the ASCRS at no cost. But please, don't do any of these things until you've enjoyed this episode of As Seen From Here. This is part two of my interview with Jose Lorenzo Carrero on incomplete PVDs. We pick up where we left off last time. Jose, does the presence of a Weiss ring indicate the completion of a PVD? Well, I, I would say that in most cases, yes. But we should keep in mind that we, when we look at the wise ring, we are seeing the annular glial tissue that normally is attached to the optic disc. So we are right if we say that the posterior vitreous is detached, but we are not sure if the peripheral vitreous is completely detached. Interestingly, there are studies using a scanning laser of phalmoscope, showing that a complete ring is evident in less than 50% of eyes with a complete PVD, suggesting that frequently this ring is disrupted and at least some part of the ring has remained attached to the optic disc. So I would say that identification of a wise ring is a good uh, surrogate for posterior vitreous detachment but it does not indicate the completion, the completion of, a, of a PVD. But uh, anyway, I think it's the best sign we have to, in, to indicate a PVD. Best sign clinically. Clinically, yeah, sure, clinically. This next question deals with lattice. Why do you think it is that lattice degeneration was more associated with an incomplete PVD? And why specifically inferior incompletion? Well... Uh, a lattice degeneration uh, affects, affects essentially the, the inner retinal layers. The thickness of the involved retina is one-third that of the, of the surrounding uh, retina. Invariably, there is an empty vitreous overlying lesion with vitreous condensation just around the borders of the lesion. 
So we have in some way a dangerous combination that is a weak retina contoured by a strong vitroretinal adhesion. So when PVD overcomes, uh, there will be likely an incomplete PVD. And this feature happens more often in the superior quadrants than in the inferior ones, because first the progressive type of lattice uh, is often located in this quadrant, and because the gravitational component as well. Short of performing a high-gain B-scan, is there any clinical clue that a PVD is complete? Well, examination of the peripheral vitreous is, is quite difficult, I think. But there are some signs that suggest that the vitreous is completely detached. So I would look for a vitreous collapse. So when performing biomicroscopy of the anterior segment, we have to focus behind the posterior surface, surface of the lens. And if a vitreous collapse exists, we can notice the posterior hyaloid with its wrinkled surface close to the posterior capsule of the lens. And it is, I think this is a sign, very useful sign. Additionally, if our patient is within the normal age range for a PVD and we do not find any peripheral between retinal degeneration, I think we can feel confident about the completeness of the vitreous detachment and I think we can expect a low risk uh, for complications. I generally examine patients when they first have symptoms and then again three or four weeks later to give the PVD an opportunity to complete. Since your data demonstrate that many PVDs remain incomplete and that since a Weiss's ring is not a reliable, not, not an absolute indicator of completion, Jose, what should the appropriate follow-up interval be? Well, well, um, I think you are right. You have uh, you have most of the chances of not missing almost any retinal tear doing as you do. But let's remember that only two percent of non-complicated PVD will will experience a retinal tear, and most of them will occur during the first month after PVD presentation. Well, now based on the f on the findings of this study, I I would go further saying that less than 1%. Most important is the fact that most of them will be symptomatic. So data from this study help, help us to better differentiate patients with higher risk. I will follow patients with incomplete PVD at four weeks and they have a 7.5% risk of retinal tear. But anyway, I wish, I wish to highlight the importance of warning patients about new symptoms. And if, I, and if, if my patients ha, has a, a complete PVD, I just warn him or her and, uh, and let him or her go. In the context of your own clinical practice, how do you manage PVD patients? Well, what I normally do is just when I evaluate a PVD, I like to search for signs of risk, like uh, pigmented cells, blood cells in the anterior vitreous, and I also look for vitreous collapse behind the lens, which points to a complete PVD. And I like to use the, 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 the 90 diopters plus non-contact lens to study the posterior vitreous, 
And I also, obviously, want to do an indirect ophthalmoscopy with the scleral indentation to evaluate the periphery. And I do ultrasound in cases of poor corporation, poor media transparency, and also in cases uh, when I when I find lattice degeneration of, of, of whenever the patient is younger than expected. And in these cases, I look for incomplete PVD. So, in these cases, if I have a complete, if the patient has a, a complete and incomplete PVD, I emphasize these warnings. But I want to see the patient again in between two and four weeks. But if the patient have a complete PVD, I just ask the patient uh, to come to see me uh, if he or she experienced new, new, new symptoms. Jose, I have a technical question. You, you describe it in the study using high-gain B-scan. Is that just a standard B-scan with the gain turned up? Or is there some special hardware that, that is a, a high-gain B-scan? Well, it's, it's commercially available. It's a standard. I mean, it's, 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 it's uh, off the scan. But, but um, it's true that this device has uh, 105 decibels, which uh, lets you very, very pretty well, very pretty well to, to, to look for the posterior hyaloid. Most, uh, most of, the, of, the, of, the, of the devices available commercially, they have uh, 90, de 90 decibels. But I think 90 decibels is enough to detect the, the, the posterior high alert. I think, so I, I did this study with a, with a commercially available uh, 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 ultrascan. Well, I think the, the question now is, uh, we have to look at the posterior vitreous detachment. I think we should look at this condition as, um, as I mentioned before, uh, uh, talking about macular holes or, ep or epimacular membranes or even uh, vitreomacular macular traction syndromes. There is a, a, a um, pathological form of vitreous detachment, which which is called, um, is an author called Jerry Sebag, and I think this is, is good. He, he defined this concept of anomalous vitreous detachment. So the vitreous normally with OCT, we, we, we see that the vitreous begins to detach in the, in the 30s or 40s, slowly, progressive, asymptomatically, and till the 60s or 70s, with, when we have the, the, the acute event of vitreous papillary separation, what we, we, we call that a posterior vitreous detachment. But there is an anomalous separation of the vitreous, with, uh, which can uh, 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 um, develop uh, tractional forces of the macula uh, and develop uh, macular holes and epimacular membranes and all that. And also, I think one of the of the, of the problems with vitreous detachment and, and retinal detachment, which is very 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 uh, related to vitreous detachment, obviously, is that is PVR. Well, we see PVR membranes developing in, in, in retinal detachment. And now we, we have a great experience with, with, with vitreo retinal procedures. And we see how often we have to detach the vitreous from the posterior pole and from the retina and, and from places we previously thought that were free of vitreous. So we, we used to think that the vitreous was detached 
to the till the till the vitreous base. And now with our experience in vitro retinal surgery, we see now how often we find the vitreous still attached to the posterior pole or or to the retina. Jose Carrera, thank you so much. Muchas gracias. Not at all. You're welcome. Jose Lorenzo Carrero comes to us from the retina unit in the Department of Ophthalmology at the Hospital Povisa in Vigo, Spain. His paper, Incomplete Posterior Vitreous Detachment, Prevalence and Clinical Relevance, appears in the March 2012 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Carrero or any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.